Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Parma podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. I'm uh, delighted to welcome another new guest to the show uh, and someone I think has got a lot of wisdom and insight to share with us today, um, Reverend Dr. Kate Hanch. Welcome to the show. Thank you, James, and thank you for the invitation. Oh, you're welcome. It's uh, it's really, really great to have you on the show. Um, yeah, been a long time coming. Uh, so. Yeah. I'm excited. Um, so, just before we get into get into get get into depth, just tell us a bit about yourself and, and what you do. Yes. Um, well, I received my PhD I, um, on Holy Thursday of 2020, which felt very apropos uh, in theology and ethics at Garrett Evangelicals Theological Seminary. I work as an associate pastor at First St. Charles United Methodist Church in St. Charles, Missouri, which is near the St. Louis area, if you're not familiar with Missouri or the Midwest. But um, I'm ordained in the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which is it broke off of the Southern Baptist. So I'm ordained in that tradition, but I'm, I'm serving in a United Methodist congregation and looking for discerning next steps in terms of ministry, but also in terms of uh, how to use my PhD to to bless the church and the world, which was the whole reason I got a PhD to begin with. So that's a little bit about me. I live in the suburbs. Um, I am committed to helping people think deeply theologically in a way that allows them and their neighbor to flourish. And I also like bringing unknown women or unknown figures to the fore. So for instance, I've preached about Zilpha Ela, who actually traveled to England from the United States to preach. Uh, I've preached about um, Julia Foote and written about Julia Foote. So that's kind of, um, a secondary goal is to bring what people don't consider theologians to the fore as theologians who are brilliant and spiritually mature and have something to say that we today need to listen to. Fantastic. That's fantastic. And just to clarify, what's your PhD in? It's in theology and ethics, and the title was "Prophetic Humility: A Feminist Theological Account." So mm-hmm. I looked. Yeah, I know. I well, I I find it funny that you know a PhD student is running on humility because we are not known. You know, PhDs are not known for being humble. <laughs> right. I, I, Yes. So I looked at three medieval white European women and then three 19th century black United States women preachers to construct a humility that wasn't humiliating. And it took a really long time. And I wondered if it was even a valid category to talk about because um, in this season, we don't really talk about humility. You don't, I mean, you see it valued, but you don't see like, if you had to define humility, you know, you'd get like 10 or 15 different dis- discussions. And so I wanted to look at it through the lens of women because medieval women were marginalized to various extents. But 19th century Black women preachers were marginalized not only by their um, 
race, but by their gender, by their economic status. Some Black women, like Sojourner Truth, was enslaved when she was born. And so, and yet she worked for the good of herself and others. And what if that was humility? So I came up with a preliminary definition that I'm still testing out because your PhD work is never finished is that, and I'm playing off of the early church figure Irenaeus, but from these six women, I discern that the foolish prophetic humility is the foolishness of God and that the word becomes bodied so that bodies can become as God. So that was, and so there's a lot of of other things with that dissertation, but it was fun to look at and center the women as theologians and not just like historical figures, but they are doing creative theology in conversation with um, their communities and their world. And it's just, it's beautiful. Um, I really would encourage people to read their works and to learn from their theology. That's really encouraging to hear that people are thinking about women theologians from history because there's so there's there's so many like you say that, and obviously because of patriarchy and and things um they've probably been ignored or not called you know not called theologians or prophets or whatever that, that because but and it's time and we do need to change that um yeah. we need to raise up women's voices even women's voices of the past that maybe weren't heard as much you know um and black voices as well which weren't heard for obvious reasons, um, you know, systemic racism and um, much bigger racism, actually. It wasn't just systemic racism. It was um, much wider at that point. But, yeah, um, I think that's fantastic work, and it's really important work. Thank you. And um, I will say that I realized the blind spots of a white woman looking and examining and discerning the theologies of black women and how that can often be co-opted. I have blind spots because I am not black. And simultaneously, I am wanting to lift them up so other white women can learn from them or other white people. Uh, So often when we think of women in ministry, we think of, you know, white women in ministry, or we think of like, the Seneca rights or Seneca Falls Convention in the United States in 1848 and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but Sojourner Truth was there too. And Sojourner Truth um, was doing similar and more things than her white abolitionist count or white suffragist counterparts and was also experiencing the racism from these white women. So I think it's, especially in this season of our country and political climate and whatnot, it is important for us white women and white people to reflectively learn and pray and repent and read the stories of of Black people throughout the centuries. Absolutely, it is, I think. And And you're absolutely right as well to acknowledge inbuilt bias, blind spots, um, and privilege, white privilege, because uh, as white people, when we're, when we're examining those, when we're examining stories of black people, we have to 
we have to acknowledge our own inbuilt biases and our own privilege before anything else and, and have humility with that. Um, and because um, I think that's, I think that's always really, really important. Yes. Yes. Um, and what I, what I learned in my studies is that humil like a lot of people will talk about like kenosis and in Philippians two and, or they'll um, talk about, vulnerability in theological studies. So you'll see discussions of vulnerability and you see discussions of kenosis and they, sometimes they overlap, like in a few works they overlap, but sometimes they're separate. And so what does it look like for humility to under its umbrella to include both the kenosis or the self-giving of Christ, but also include the acknowledgement of vulnerability um, so humility is more, I describe it following Joy Bostick's kind of rendering of a habitus or a, humility is a way of being in the world that is contextual. So one can be humble and actually stand up for oneself um, or one based on the level of priv- privilege or one can be humble and take a step back. So Humility is what I see it as as this umbrella term whereby kenosis, which is only mentioned once in the New Testament, and discussions of vulnerability can be under this umbrella term of humility. And I see humility as Trinitarian and exemplified in the Trinitarian life. We see how to practice humility through the witness of Jesus and the Gospels and so forth. So that's kind of try, me trying to break that out of humility is not like self-degradation or it is, acknowledge, it is an accurate awareness of ourselves, which means an awareness of our blind spots. Absolutely agree. Yeah, that's right. I love that definition of, of humility. It's, it goes alongside that famous one that I keep hearing. of. It's not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. It's, it's taking a step back um, from our ego and from privilege for all those things and being willing to learn uh, and listen uh, and unlearn things that we need to unlearn as well. Yes. And for um, black women, it might be thinking of themselves more because they've often been forced to not think of themselves uh, in, in their experience in a white supremacist culture. So for black women, Humility might be thinking of themselves more, and when they are able to fully live into who they are, um, they can also like set the example for other mar- marginalized persons. Absolutely, yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. This is really important, and it kind of goes with what with what with what's been happening. And I mean, in the last twelve months. Yes. You know, with George Floyd and um, the kind of increased awareness of systemic racism and Black Lives Matter and things. Um, yeah, it's even more important now. I mean, it was always important. Don't get me wrong. It's never, it's not more important now than it was, but it's people, there's more awareness of it now and more urgency around it now than there was. Uh, and uh, it's a conversation that's, that's, that's happening more and that has, that needs to happen. And, um, I think what you're doing is really, really important in that respect. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, getting on to that, that last year, obviously 2020 was a bit of a 
a year. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, too many things happen to even go through them. Um, you know, global pandemic and, um, you know, an election. And, and obviously we mentioned George Floyd and all of the things that came out of that. Um, and how did that, how did the whole, how has the whole experience of that and in particular kind of, I suppose the pandemic and, and lockdown and, and how our lives have changed, how has that impacted you? Mm, I mean, that is a good question. And that is something that I still vacillate on. And I think most of us vacillate on <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> depending on the day. Uh, um, so, so with the, we had our last church service, like March 8th of last year. And then the following week we shut down completely. And I think I am seeing hope in the little, um, well, and I know this sounds cheesy, but in nature, <laughs> because um, thankfully, I am able to safely be outside and socially distance. And uh, so I have been outside a lot going for walks, paying attention and um, t- seeing glimpses of the spirit's presence in little things. Also, I am seeing a hope and encouragement from the students whom I serve. We have been able to meet, you know, socially distanced or on, on Zoom or whatever. And I am so proud of them. I mean, so in the United States, at least where I am, we have the option of going in person. To, like they have the option of socially distanced in-person schooling or virtual schooling. And so um, some of them have experienced having to quarantine multiple times. Um but seeing them and the, their response to the world around them has been um, has been giving me hope and giving me life. So it is hard to like build relationships in this season, but I think our relationships, not only with each other in whatever form they may take, but with our like own bodies and with nature, um, has been a moment sustain me it's really interesting that isn't it because when we kind of we have to when we kind of we've been forced to withdraw a little bit from the world and you know from going into towns and going in shopping and going out with people going to places and yet somehow we kind of withdraw and we go into nature and which is a whole different dynamic uh, and I've noticed something similar a little bit because, I mean, like I mentioned before we started recording, that there's a park, a massive park, right behind the place that I live, and uh, it's not often very busy. And you know, you're, you're allowed out as long as you social distance and wear a mask and things like that. And obviously, always do that. Uh, but to go out there and to walk on the grass and smell the trees and uh, and all of that, that is um, that feels like a real gift. At the moment, yeah, and and to be honest, there's there's this isn't the first pandemic in history um, that we've experienced, and I'm 
I'm recalling Julian of Nor of Norwich. Is that how you pronounce? Oh yeah, Norwich. Yeah, Norwich. Yeah. She is one of the women that I studied in my dissertation, and knowing her context of when being young and suffering through the pandemic, or you know, a deep pandemic, the Black Death, which killed up to sixty percent of the population, and her ability to say all shall be well and and she doesn't i like i think she's trying to figure that out like is this true all shall be well and then she's trusting god that all shall be well and in the beginning of her revelation she has the little hazelnut in the palm of her hand and it's small and insignificant and she says before god made it god loved it and god saved it and like we are the hazelnut and uh, if Julian can survive living in like what a six by 12 um, room for years and years, and yes, she did get to interact with people more, um, but also to have suffered deeply and to have seen suffering deeply. Uh, I can draw on that. And I, I have, I mean, I've read Julian multiple times for schoolwork and to write, various papers and whatnot, but to read Julian for spiritual um, sustenance has just been just as important for me. Yeah. It's really fascinating how we start to look at people from the past who've been, who suffered greatly uh, when we're going through this to add context. Um, and you're right. It's a very, very good example to look at Julian of Norwich um yeah and we've had a it's slightly different I guess but we've had there's a guy in the UK who's just passed away um mm -hmm. uh, who fought in the second world war uh and um he turned 100 last year um and uh he he uh he walked he did he did a lot of walking last year um <laughs> Um, around his walking laps of his garden, basically in the care home that he lives in, mm -hmm. um, because it was the only exercise to do to raise money for the NHS, and it, it just this thing just took off, and it it gave people hope, and it gave people inspiration. And he's, you know, he's a he's he was vulnerable. He was very old, very weak. Um, obviously, needed a frame to walk with. A hundred years old, um, nearly, and and yet he. Whenever you heard him talk, he was optimistic. He was hopeful. He was, things will get better. Don't worry. Keep going. You know, um, because he's been there. He's seen things that yeah. we haven't seen, like World War Two. You know, he was, he fought in World War Two, and that was, you know, horrible. Um, and you know, you know, there was no obviously we, we have the benefit of hindsight knowing what happened. They they didn't, and um, and I guess he's been there. You know in really dark days and come through the other side and just that kind of wisdom and that experience it's been i know it's been an inspiration to a lot of people um uh, including young people um which i think is really really you know encouraging um that people are looking to people like that because like you say people who've been there people who've really suffered and have the wisdom of that and uh, knowing that that it doesn't last forever and that there is still hope um, 
is stuff that we really need right now. Yeah, I think for me, and too, reading womanist texts um, of and hearing about the experiences of Black women suffering and how things may... Um, may not get as better as we'd like them to, but knowing that we are beloved by God no matter what happens and that we have um, purpose and beauty within ourselves and yeah. in the world. Like, with, with you know, like, without... You know, with with Sojourner Truth, for instance, she didn't get the rights to vote as a black woman in her lifetime. Uh, And a lot of these streams do go unfulfilled. And yet, I think what's helpful about looking at history, whether it's from World War II or from the Middle Ages or scripture, is that we have... And I'm reminded again of Hebrews 11, but uh, we have this hope, even if we, if things don't get better, we can make, maybe make it better for somebody else, or maybe um, be an example for, for, for going forward. I mean, that is what Sojourner Truth has been for me, even though she did not get the right to vote uh, as, as a black woman. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to me that people who suffered greatly seem to have the most wisdom to share with us. Um, Yeah, I I consistently find that. Some of the wisest people are the people that have suffered greatly. Um, And that's sad, it shouldn't be that way, because we shouldn't want anyone to suffer. Oh, I found it myself actually. I mean, I've mm-hmm. nothing like anybody, like, nothing like any of those people have been through at all. But you know, losing a parent when I was in my early twenties and having a bit of a childhood trauma and things, and doing the work of healing and doing the work of of grief and um, going into that pain and leaning into it, um, getting support, processing it has actually taught me more than if my life had been one long string of successes and everything had gone right for me, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, there is some additional insight if we can, when we can learn and learn from our pain. It's, it's hard though, because we don't want to justify the pain, but we can learn from it. I think that's, uh, I don't, yeah. I was going to say something really thoughtful and I I lost it. It probably wasn't as thoughtful as I was. That's I am that <laughs> <laughs> and humor, right? Like, what is the role of humor in yeah. hope? Yes. Oh, I wish I could convey this to people because it, having been through a lot of trauma, um, one thing that teaches you is to laugh uh, at more things, to have to find joy in moments, to be fully present in the moment, to not, you know, wait for, to not 
to not kind of wait for the big the big highs to to find joy uh, and to be able to laugh when things don't quite work out sometimes and to laugh at yourself to laugh at life um, <laughs> yeah and it's not like this sadistic thing it's not it's not because it's all great it's not because you're not sad uh, or annoyed or, or anything like that or you don't know how, how you know, they don't understand the meaning of it but it's more that you just realize, you know, this is life and this is how life can be. And, um, you know, and it's just another opportunity to, to grow, you know, like, um, and often when little things go wrong now, I just laugh because it's just like, yeah, this is, this is how life is, you know, I'll get through. Um, exactly. uh, and it's um, really good to get rid of, get rid of emotional energy as well and tension, um, get it out of your body. Um, it's much better to do that than get angry and full of rage and bitterness and cynicism and um, and all of that kind of thing because that can just that can overwhelm you. Like, I mean, healthy anger is healthy anger can be good. Healthy anger can be good, um, but, um, and sometimes it's justified. But but sometimes you know, it, it, laughing can be good to get rid of a lot of nervous energy. I so agree, and I've I'm recalling of a book that. I think Amy Laura Hall wrote about Julian called Laughing at the Devil, which I have not read, unfortunately, but I love the concept. <laughs> and and James, this is silly, but kind of what's giving me hope right now is TikTok. I <laughs> I recently yeah. got on it and I don't post any videos myself and I have like a pseudonym. But like people are hilarious and the way they are able to be funny and bring joy, like just to bring joy for others has been quite beautiful to me. I mean, uh, you know, they make, you know, they do some fun, poke fun at religion and whatnot, but um, it has been a way to relieve tension and a point of, of sharing with communities. And it's it's silly as all get out, but like TikTok has been so fun and just a light reprieve. But then there's also that communal aspect where people are trying to get people to laugh. And I mean, you could like theologize on this pretty well, as silly as it sounds. I think you could do like a theology of TikTok. Um, but what has okay. made you what has made you laugh, James? Like what makes me laugh? Well, I. Um, I have some good friends um, who I talk to a lot uh, and we often laugh together Um, I often and I tell you what the biggest thing that's made me laugh in the last 12 months is um, your Shits Creek that was that has been so therapeutic honestly it was that gave me hope it inspired me I felt solidarity in some ways um it was it was because it's the story of people making remaking their lives after losing everything yeah um, like everything is taken away from them everything that they've known so there's a massive grieving experience and then there's the then there's the chance of transformation and and actually just finding who they are and it was compelling like it took me a month or so or a couple of months to get through the first few episodes because it's really hard to to start with but once i did i, I literally watched about I think, think I watched like five and a half series in about 10 days because it was just so compelling. It was, 
it was it was and I watched it again. <laughs> no. it, it gave me it did it gave me a need a lift when I really needed it. Uh, and it made me laugh as well and it made me cry. Um because crying is good as well. Um so yeah, I guess that's what made me what's made me laugh in the last twelve months. And yeah, I've seen my fair share a few fair share of videos and stuff as well. So uh, like funny videos, you know, like the, the funny ones. Some of them have been TikToks. Um <laughs> uh, there have been other ones, but um but, you know, there's been a few viral viral ones. So yeah. <laughs> now there's something about like humor and meme culture and I think it would be so fun to do a paper on it, though I don't have any time. Uh, but to like compare the notion of TikTok and meme culture, you know, like funny stuff to like the um, jesters back in the medieval day. And so like that whole concept of of the court jester was that they could say the truth about the powers at be, but be hilarious and get away with it. And I see so much of that, um, maybe to an extent in Schitt's Creek, which is a great, great show, but also in some of these TikToks and viral videos, they're like speaking the truth in a way that they can get away with because it's so funny. And, uh, and humor and the use of humor is a sign of hope. I mean, if we cannot laugh, can we have hope? Uh, I love it. It's not a surprise that you often get, in times of great suffering, you often get a lot of great comedy. Um, yeah. A lot of great art as well um, comes out of it as well. It's often the way. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's comedians have always been prophets in my you know, The great comedians, the real, the real great comedians are prophets. They tell the truth. They just do it in a way where you, where you have to laugh. Um, yeah. And you laugh almost because it's true, and uh, and everyone knows it's true, but they just don't want to say it's true. You know, it's like they um, they say the things that we don't that we almost can't say or don't want to say that we know that everyone knows is true. Um, and um, yeah, that's what makes a great comedian. You know, I think some of those some of those type of comedians get silenced a bit now because what they make what they say can make people feel uncomfortable, and people don't get the humor or the point of the humor. But, um, you know, like, I suppose in the last 10 years, some comedians have just become like sanitized comedians, you know, um, which, which I didn't realize the irony of saying sanitized when I said it. But, um, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, um, but I think, yeah, comedians as truth tellers and prophets is, is a really interesting concept. And I think it's really, I think it's true. I think it's it true. is. I, um, one of my what chapters in my dissertation was entitled like the foolishness of God. And so I kind of played around with it and looked at like, you know, the court jesters, but also looked at the lives of women. And so another one of them was Marjorie Kemp and she was English, but she was a weirdo. She cried all the time. And, uh, yeah, and I think she knew she was kind of funny. Like it's almost reads at times like a comedy. And yet that is showing, you know, in her weird antics, like she's crying over something that's kind of ridiculous, but then it like it's revealed that a priest was sinning and <laughs> like her tears made it happen or uh 
Zofia Ilov, for instance, she travels to Maine where she's the only black woman around for miles and miles. And that's considered silly or foolish. And yet she is uh, speaking a truth that these folk need to hear and can say it more powerfully because of who she is. And, and so that's like another way, this whole foolishness of God in a time of hope, like, or in a time of, of weird crisis can, can be hopeful to be foolish maybe is to be hopeful and to be hopeful is to be foolish. Yeah. That's so true. To be hopeful is to be foolish, and to be foolish is to be hopeful. Yeah, because hope can seem foolish sometimes. You can be like, how can you possibly feel hope at a time like this? How can you possibly, you know, you know almost some people, actually some people get, like admonish you for feeling hopeful um, when things are difficult. You know, some people do. Um, and I get that. I get if people feel that way. Um, I, I guess I've always been not an optimist, but a believer in people, believer in the best that that we can be, uh, and that there's always hope. Um, and I'll tell you why, actually, the reason I believe that is because I've been been to the absolute depths in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. losing a parent, childhood trauma, like I can't even describe, um, and almost losing everything, and, and I'm here. And, you know, you know, Losing my mum was the worst day of my life. And you think, well, you know, how am I going to get past this? How am I ever going to move on from this? You know, and I'm here and I'm thriving. So, and so there is hope, even though you can't sometimes see it. You just have to look for it, you know, like, and I've noticed that this year, early 2021, there's a few signs of hope. I felt it actually uh, over the Christmas and New Year period in my body. I just felt that. I can feel, I can sense, I'm picking up on little grains of hope. Um, and there wasn't anything like any evidence of it. I just felt it. And then I started to see evidence for it in the start of this year, you know, the, um, you know, the, um, the inauguration and, um, you know, little things like Donald Trump getting banned from Twitter and all these little things. These are little things, but they, but they just show you the end of the way that the thing, that the thing is shifting. The energy is, the way that the energy is moving. Well, the spirit is moving. If you want to put it in Christian language, um, that, that there is hope, you know, and that things are things are changing, and that things will get better. Um, we just have to keep yeah. looking for those those little those little grains of hope, and hold on to them, and let them let them give us energy for the next day, and keep going. Yeah, I think if you look at the whole arc of scripture. Uh, you can begin to sense a feeling of hope, whether it is with um, uh, Moses and the 400 years of enslavement and then the freedom of the Hebrews from the Egyptians, like 400 years is a long time. Or if it's, uh, um, you know, rebuilding the walls. We just talked about Nehemiah in Sunday school. So that's kind of in my head now. Um, but but Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and how people thought he was silly. And and it's funny, if you read the book of Nehemiah, depending on what translation you, you do, there is like a dung gate and a water, like all these different kinds of gates. But one gate is a poop gate, which is funny and 
you know, um, everybody has a little 12 year old boy in them at times that thinks poop is funny. So, uh, but, but the arc of scripture points to moments of hope, Paul in the book of Acts and the journeys he makes and how dangerous it is. And then you have, again, you go back to Hebrews 11 and uh, the Hall of Fame of the faithful who were hopeful and who didn't necessarily, you know, Moses never saw the promised land, but that doesn't mean the promised land didn't exist. So um, knowing in this season that we can find humor and uh, little bits of hope to sustain us. And I think it's good to think about hope, maybe like right now as we approach Lent, like in the context of Lent, uh, where might repentance and hope go together? Where might that longing for something more or self-examination and, and hope go together? And I don't really know if I have an answer for that, but it's something I'm thinking about right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, and as we record, it is Lent coming up, and I Lent is always, I you know, even though I wouldn't probably box myself into Christianity anymore, although I still have Jesus as very much as the center mm-hmm. of my spiritual journey. Um, Lent is always a always a really interesting time for me, and I, I I kind of love I love Advent and I love Lent because they're times of almost preparation and reflection and. Um, you know, and looking forward in many ways, um, and looking back and looking forward. Um, and yeah, um, I'm looking forward to Lent this year as well for the same reasons. Yeah, I need Lent and I'm, I'm very much, um, still within the Christian faith. I am, a I am a pastor. So, um, I've, I've needed Lent more than ever this year. And I think you said something interesting, James, about like hope in relation to how we view time, both forward thinking and backward thinking, and how how the backward thinking can help us with forward thinking, and maybe the forward thinking can help us with the backward thinking. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely agree. Look back to go forward. Um, learn the lessons from your past. <sighs> name what you've experienced. Name how it made you feel. Name that. Feel that. Learn from it and choose to do the work of growth and healing and transformation. Um, yeah. um, I believe that completely. Um, this has been such a great conversation. I've really enjoyed this. <laughs> well, thank you, James. I. At, at times it's really hard to talk about hope because I don't have much. I also think like I've always thought about this in relation to faith or, or even hope that when I don't have any, that the community and in my case, it would be the church community can hold that hope for me, but then the larger community as well. So um, thank you for letting me think about this, however, roughly and imperfectly. No, it's been fantastic, and I, I appreciate your your voice and your and the wisdom that you've you've shared, and honesty that you've spoken with too. It's um, it's it's great. Um, where can people connect with you and uh, and more and your work? Um, 
I'm I'm pretty active right now on Twitter, which is at Kate Hanch. I am God willing, crossing fingers, holding in hope, might we say, working on um, a book rep- proposal. So we'll see where that lands. And um, I sometimes write for the Baptists, uh, though I've I need to get back at that. <laughs> so. <laughs> But yeah, connecting with me at on Twitter at, at Kate Hanch is the best way to reach me. Fantastic. I would encourage you to do that, everyone. Um, yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been really great. Um, Thank you. And thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>